right, our uh, scripture reading, our Old Testament scripture reading today is from uh, Genesis 1, or Genesis 13, rather. Uh, I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Our New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In our scripture reading today, is from Exodus. Exodus 8, and I will read verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Right, so today we are continuing our study of Exodus, and for the last few weeks, we have been examining that section containing the story of uh, what is traditionally known as the Ten Plagues, which was a series of calamities that were inflicted on the Egyptians designed to compel Pharaoh to send the Israelites away. Now, if you've been here for these last few sermons, you know that one of the big points I've been trying to make is although we traditionally refer to these as the Ten Plagues, the text does not refer to them this way. Instead, the text calls them signs and wonders. And I think that's a very helpful term uh, in describing their purpose. I think it's more helpful than plagues. Plagues just implies punishment, but signs point to something. There's informational contents. And I've been making the case that the signs are designed not just to punish the Egyptians and can compel them to free the Israelites, but to reveal something about Yahweh to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and, of course, to us. And so, you know, just to recap, thinking back, by changing the Nile River into blood, Yahweh reveals to the Egyptians what their civilization looks like to them, to him. Uh, to the Egyptians and to everyone else, Egypt was this giant superpower with fertility and abundance and, of course, cool pyramids. But God sees past this and instead hears the blood that those Egyptians have sacrificed to achieve their power and security. In the second plague, that's the best plague, right? The frogs. And we talked about the giant frog last week. That was pretty awesome. But uh, in the second plague, we learned that, uh, well, the second, excuse me, second sign. Yeah. We learned that Yahweh is the one who brings life, fertility, and abundance. So, that's the kind of grid that we're going to use as we study these. Now, you may ask, is he going to go through all 10 of these? 
The answer is, I don't know. Um, as long as I can get some informational content that I think will be helpful and edifying to us and instructive, I, I, I plan on going through them. Um, it may be beyond my abilities for some of these. I'm kind of concerned about boils. But um, in any event, uh, my intent is to uh, do what we can and see what we can discover and learn about Yahweh. Now, uh, interestingly, these signs follow a pattern, okay? There seems to be three cycles of three plagues, okay? So, and then, you know, at the end, there's the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, that kind of is like the, the capstone of all of them. But they seem to come in these cycles, and uh, the first, second, and third of each cycle share similarities, okay? Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later uh, it's not that important. Uh, just to point out that this is the last sign in this first cycle, since it's the third play. So one, two, three follows one cycle, four, five, six, another, uh, seven, eight, nine. And so what I'm saying is that one, four, and seven all follow a pattern and so on. Now, today we're going to look at the third sign, which is the sign of gnats. And actually, we don't know that it was gnats. We don't know which animal is involved. Uh, plants and animals are notoriously difficult to translate, uh, mostly because the way that people in the ancient world classified the natural world differs quite significantly than the way we do. And so when it comes to the natural world, we always have to be a little bit, you know, uncertain about our translation. So, you know, it could have been gnats, but lots of... Uh, of, of uh, different offending agents have been suggested. For example, gnats, ticks, lice, mosquitoes, and maggots. Maggots are all suggested. Uh, I actually tend to think, and I think it's uh, a large body of scholars uh, agree with this one, that it's probably lice is the most uh, likely. And if you have the King James Version, I know, I know. If you have the King James Version, that's actually what the KJV translates it to. Uh, the reason is because there's no mention of flying anywhere, okay? So that seems to be why most people go for lice. And uh, anybody that's had children with lice, uh, I, I think I see a few people cringing. Yes, no, that... This would be a pretty terrible thing to have happen, right? A massive life infestation would be really bad. We know the Egyptians, like, had problems with lice. In fact, uh, they shaved their head a lot. And uh, as my wife informed me, like, that actually isn't a total protection against uh, lice. Uh, so, you know, they were doing what they could, but you can still have problems. So anyway, lice, great. Now, <laughs> what a sunny morning sermon. Uh, <laughs> Now, if we look at the text, we read that Aaron stretches out his staff, he strikes the dust, and now there are lice everywhere. And you'll notice that this sign comes with no warning to the Pharaoh, okay? The previous signs, uh, Pharaoh was warned in advance. Uh, this sign, which is characteristic of all the third signs in, in, in each cycle, there's no warning given. Uh, so, so that's a common feature. Now, one detail that seems significant here is that this, these lice originate from the dust of the earth. Uh, the text uh, repeats the word dust over and over. I think it's four times we come across dust. Uh, you know, uh, Aaron strikes the dust and the dust becomes lice. Uh, dust appears in verse 17. It says all the dust of Egypt becomes lice. Now, all the dust of Egypt 
okay? Think about that. That's a lot of dust. That's a lot of lice. Is anyone like itchy? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sometimes, you know, you're studying the Bible and it's just like, yeah. I mean, I had to do the whole thing in Exodus 4 with the circumcision thing. That was great. So, you know, oh, well. Now, as we know in our study of Exodus, when we read Exodus, one of the most important ways when we think about interpreting Exodus is to look toward that's your cue, Canaan. Genesis, right. So Genesis. Now, dust actually appears, appears quite frequently in Genesis. Uh, so it seems natural to maybe think about, since dust keeps uh, re- being repeated here, uh, you know, why did God have to use dust to turn it into lice, right? Like God could have probably just snapped and there were lice everywhere, right? It doesn't, like, I mean, you who have had lice, lice infected, lice infected, Lice infestations in your house know that dust really wasn't uh, involved, right? So why the dust? So probably when I say dust in Genesis, you think naturally Genesis 2. We're told that humans are formed from the dust of the ground. And we also know famously that when the humans are punished for the sin, for sin uh, we say from dust you are and to dust you will return. In fact, in the next few weeks, uh, according to the liturgical calendar, we have what's coming up. What significant uh, time? What? Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is coming up, right? Ash Sunday. Hey, you can tell. We're not. Didn't grow up liturgical. <laughs> so, uh, but Ash Wednesday is coming up, and you know the ash represents dust, and it's about this idea about returning to dust. So that's going to become a theme in the next few weeks. In fact, I may uh, depart from our sermon series on Exodus just to talk about uh, the to talk about dust uh, in preparation for Ash Wednesday. So we might be able to connect the reference to dust in Genesis 2 and the formation of humans. You know, maybe we could see uh, dust transforming into lice as a demonstration of God's ability to bring life into the world. Uh, you know, maybe something about death. Uh, you know, I guess the lice were so annoying that they might, you know, we might want to be dead. <laughs> Scratching again. Yeah, but um, still, you know, Let's think about some other ways, other places we can find. So there's another place in Genesis that I think is more helpful, and it just happened to be our Old Testament reading. Crazy, right? Back in Genesis 13, Yahweh promised Abraham numerous descendants. And God describes that these promised descendants would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. The descendants of Abraham would number so many, counting them would be like trying to count the dust of the earth. And later, that promise, that that prediction, that description is going to be repeated to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. So you remember Jacob at Bethel, you know, with with uh, Jacob's ladder, with the angels ascending and descending. God promises him at that meeting that, again, his descendants would be as numerous as the dust on the earth. So I think it's most likely, if we're looking at a dust reference in Genesis, that this is what we were referring to. You know, um, promises of these descendants being innumerable as the dust on the earth is probably the reference. I I think that's why the phrase uh, used here uh, in uh, Exodus, all the dust of the earth. I think that's why that phrase is used here. Because it's meant to recall this like uncountable number. 
And so what does that mean? Well, I think what that means is that what the Egyptians are experiencing here is a picture of the promise that Yahweh had made to Abraham and Jacob. Like, you know, this, this idea of these numerous descendants. Yahweh had promised the ancestors of the Israelites they would be numerous. It's a, it's a feature that appears again and again throughout Genesis. It's a key part of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. A key reason that Abraham was called out onto this uh, mission. And, you know, again, remember that that call of Abraham isn't just some guy who's getting blessed. Abraham is the vehicle in which, you know, God is intending to, like, fix everything that went wrong in the world starting back uh, from Genesis 3. So it's a, it, this promise is a big deal. Um, now, think about again in our story of Exodus. The, extra, the Israelites had gone to Egypt. They had become numerous doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, exactly what God had promised. And Pharaoh saw this and tried to stop it, right? Yahweh had promised their fathers they'd be numerous. But Yahweh, um, Yahweh is a God who is not only powerful, right? But he's a God who keeps his promises. So what Pharaoh's trying to do is actually to stop God from keeping his promises. Right, and so the lice here are a way of showing that what is going to that that this numerousness this uh, that was promised to the Israel is going to happen because Yahweh has promised it, and everyone's just going to have to deal with it. Right? Pharaoh's like, I'm really uh, annoyed by these Israelites. I want to stop them, and what God's trying to say is, no, you don't get to do that because I've promised them. It, it, this is going to happen. It's as if inevitable and like it, it, it's a big deal. It's as certain as this uh, plague of lice that you're now dealing with. Now, uh, in their story, as it goes on, notably the magicians try to uh, replicate this sign as they've been trying to do all along, right? Starting with, uh, you know, when Moses throws the staff on the ground and it turns into a snake, each time the magicians are able to repeat the sign. Uh, here, the magicians are not. Now, I'd imagine Pharaoh's like, <laughs> thank goodness they can't replicate this sign because there's one thing we don't need. It's more lice. Uh, significantly, though, it's interesting that uh, what, what, how did the magicians, what did they conclude? They conclude that this is the finger of God, you know? Now, here the magicians have actually been, been the ones who have started to kind of grasp what is going on, the situation, probably before Pharaoh does. Um, it's probably not quite the confession of faith like we might think it to be. Uh, notice that they're not really acknowledging, you know, this is the one creator God whose name is Yahweh that, you know, we're in a relationship with. But they do understand that their powers have been superseded, that what is going on here is not a mere trick. This is from the divine realm. This is beyond anything that they could do. They are limited. This is, this is it. Uh, so again, remember this in the context of a battle. What's going on is a battle. It's not, and it's not simply about freeing the Israelites. God could have, if he wanted to free the Israelites, he could have gone that any number of ways. Uh, these signs are partly about challenging the entire religion, Egyptian religious system, which was based on these competing powers that were all held by many different gods. Uh, in the Egyptian system, each god had their own agenda. And, you know, honestly, humans really weren't that important. 
uh, the gods were arbitrary. They were capricious from a human standpoint. The humans just tried to manipulate them as best they could. Now, how very different is this uh, Egyptian view of their place in the world? Uh, this Egyptian view, which is like about manipulating these gods using like sacrifices and gifts to try to get them to your side and kind of co-opt their power, is all based on power and manipulation, right? That's all it's about. Now, think about how different that is than what's been going on in the story of Genesis and into Exodus up to this point. By contrast, Yahweh is a creator God. He's established the world, and he's done it with a purpose, a purpose that specifically includes humanity. All right? Almost always when you read the myths about um, you know, in, in the ancient world, uh, usually humans are almost like not important, or they're annoying, or they get in the way uh, when it concerns the gods. In the Genesis 1 story, though, humans are like a key part of it. Humans have been delegated, you know, this responsibility, this purpose. They are created in the image of God. And that is a really, really big deal. That is not something we see in the other uh, stories from the ancient world. As a result, God actually has a relationship with humanity. It's a relational. It isn't just about power and manipulation. It's about this relationship between God and humanity in which humanity has been given power and responsibility that God has specifically delegated to him. And so what that means is that creation and humanity have a destiny. There's a purpose. There's a point. There's a goal. And God is working with them to achieve that destiny. Completely different than the Egyptian system. Now, this destiny, this purpose that God has for uh, humanity is communicated to them in the form of promises, right? God's got this destiny for the world, and the way he, he communicates to the humans that he has this destiny is by promising them things, promises which will be worked out in the world. Now, these promises kind of take a more formal uh, kind of set up uh, by a special name that we all know and love, a covenant. That's what a covenant is. It's kind of a formalization of these promises. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to tie a lot of these ideas together so you can kind of see how this works together. Uh, now, as I go on and on about the culture of the ancient world, covenants were serious business. The covenant maker, the person who makes the covenant, is pledging to fulfill the requirement of the covenant to do what he says, no matter what. Uh, so when Yahweh tells the Israelites that they will be as numerous as the dust on the earth, then Yahweh's going to do that. And, and in our text today, the, the, the Egyptians are experiencing this truth in a very tangible and itchy way, right? So what Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the Israelites learn, and we ourselves, because this is the point of this study here, so what does this sign mean? Well, here's what we learn about Yahweh. Yahweh is a God who makes and fulfills promises. Okay? That means that Yahweh's word can be trusted and relies on. It can give order to our life because our life is now moving toward a purpose, a purpose that has been promised to us. <clears throat> In Egypt, uh, you really never know if you did enough to earn your particular God's favor. You never really know, knew if the God you were sacrificing to had enough power even to use 
uh, that goodwill you earn to even accomplish the purpose over their rival. And this is a key quality that sets Yahweh apart from the other Egyptian gods. And it's why I think that this is uh, the first sign which the magicians can't perform. What the sign of the lice then demonstrates is that Yahweh will honor his promises and he has the power to do so. It doesn't depend on us. We don't need to curry or manipulate his favor the way Pharaoh and the Egyptians needed to do with their God. Instead, our obligation is to work with Yahweh as his chosen instruments to help bring about Yahweh's vision for humanity and creation. Because doing so is the only logical thing to do. Because it's going to happen with or without us. We can act as Pharaoh all we want and try to stop it. Uh, But Yahweh promised Abraham and Jacob that their children would be as uncountable as the dust on the earth. Pharaoh did everything he did to thwart that promise. But what Yahweh is showing Pharaoh is that it will not work. Because what Yahweh promises, he brings about. And the story of Israel is really... uh, that story played out, right? Time and time again, God's promises are threatened. They're threatened, you know, by uh, Adam and Eve's behavior at the tree, right? They're, they're threatened by all the uh, people, all of Noah's contemporaries. They're threatened by Israel's enemies, and they're even threatened by Israel's behavior themselves. Destruction of Israel by the Babylonians should have been the end. It should have been the end of everything. It should have just finished uh, God's promises for his people. But um, as the, the prophets uh, were always there reminding the people of God, what God had promised he was going to give them. Now, eventually we find that Israel's story moves on in this really surprising way in which it all uh, consolidates uh, into the story of Jesus. Jesus who would come into the world and model the ethical duties and responsibilities that were entrusted to Israel as uh, God's representatives of humanity on earth. The promise to Abraham would be realized and creation was renewed as Jesus defeated the greatest enemy of creation, death on the cross. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the ultimate sign that God fulfills his purposes. We know, that's what Paul talks about over and over again. Paul will say, we know things are working are, are going to get better. I know it doesn't look like it. I know you look at Rome and you just see like this powerful, you know, enemy, but you are going to win. And the reason you know you're going to win is because Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. That's kind of Paul's message. Now, there are several really amazing and important implications of this concept. First, it means that life, the universe, and everything is moving toward an end. It's moving toward a goal that is promised and determined by Yahweh. And that means our actions and existence is not arbitrary and pointless. What we do has a meaning. It's been orchestrated. Second, in all our moments, and particularly our dark moments, the certainty of Yahweh's promises should give us hope. Real hope. As we like to, as Chris is really good about pointing out, real hope, not just optimism. We're not optimistic. We have actual hope. The two are different. And third, it should direct us and commit us to a course of action. 
this is sometimes I think something we leave out. If God has designed an end and purpose for this world, if he has a plan for the, this world, then we as his agents and ambassadors in this world have a mission and an agenda. And if we take these three points together, these three points really encompass a term that we like to throw around in church a lot, but I think this really fleshes it out, the word faith. You know, faith is one of those words we throw around a lot, but I don't know that we actually have, you know, sometimes we kind of lose the definition. But I think this is what faith means. Faith is realizing that God has a plan for the universe and that it's moving forward. That in everything we have hope because Jesus rose again. And so we can bank our actions on that. And so we have a responsibility as people who have allegiance to this faith to help bring and see this this uh, plan out into the world. Now, no verse probably expresses this idea better than Romans 8.28. Probably all of you know this verse very well. In fact, I would bet, I didn't do any research on this, but I bet it's the second most memorized verse in the Bible. I bet it's like John 3.16 and then Romans 8.28. Now, before I finish up, I want to look at a couple of things about this verse uh, uh, just to make a few points. Because it's one of those, it's, it, it, it's, it's not quite read quite as well as it could be. So first, we usually read Romans 8.28 as a single verse, like totally out of context. But to fully understand the meaning of what Paul is trying to communicate, it's important for us to read it in context. Chapter 8 of Romans, which is really the heart of Romans, is really the central message of the book of Romans, begin with the statement, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. I don't know if you've heard that one. I mean, it's a great verse. Romans 8 ends with the verse, with the, ends with the statement that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? That's kind of the book in there. That's the important point. And it's that assurance that everything will be made right, which is the main point Paul wants to get across in Romans 8. That's why he bookends the chapter with that. Now, notice these statements are given in the form of a promise. A promise much like the one God delivered from Abraham when he promised Abraham land and numerous descendants. As we now know from the sign of the lice, Numerous uh, descendants, uh, you know, in, in, in other examples, probably less itchy, the promises of God are sure and dependable. And Paul is reminding his hearers of this basic truth that is the premise of his message. And now, the reason there is no condemnation is because the world is being renewed. And that renewal has begun and is evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only that, the spirit is alive in creation, in the lives and followers of Christ, projecting God's presence, this promise, this renewal into the world and bringing about new creation, just as the spirit brought about creation in Genesis 1. And so when we come to Romans 8.28, we are being reassured of the working out of this renewal in the world. Uh, So what does not come across well in most translations is it's not that all things are working together for good. That kind of implies that just things are just happening to go forward, you know. But rather, God is working all things together for good. And that's a key point because reassurance is based on God's promises. It's not based on optimism, right? Like if we just say like all things are probably working together for good, that's optimism. 
What we're saying is God has promised that and that gives us like hope and not just optimism. That's what our reassurance is based on. It's because it's God's power taking all things and working them together. Now, the other way that we read this verse usually wrong is it says that all things work together for good with those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So not for uh, good for those who love God, but with those who love God. The word for together that's used here is the Greek word from where we get the word synergy. And uh, of course, if you're in business, you know you love the word synergy. Uh, the idea is that uh, between synergy is it's a collaboration, okay? In this case, the collaboration is between God and those who love them. In fact, uh, if you read the RSV, this is actually how the RSV translated it. Now, what does that mean? Why is this important? Because it's through those who follow Christ, whom the Spirit of God dwells in, that God works out his promises into the world. We are called according to a purpose, and that purpose is no less than the redemption of all of creation, the making right of everything that's wrong in the world. And it's that purpose that God is working out and that we play a role in. We have been called just as Israel was called, just as Abraham was called, just as humans were called to share in God's purpose. That was always God's intention for humanity, going back to Genesis 1. That means we are a resurrection people. And our purpose as I like to say, is to practice resurrection. Now, looking at this world, it's complete foolishness. I get it. The world seems too broken. It seems too fallen. It seems too wrong. So it was for Paul's readers living in Rome, under Rome. It's foolishness except for one fact. The reassurance that God will work out all his purposes in the world. That God will make a people as numerous as the dust on the earth. And a God who will send his own son to defeat death, descending even into hell itself to defeat it. So, with that reassurance, let us go in peace and serve the Lord. All right. Any uh, thoughts or questions? Weiss.